right? Yep, we're going. All right. So we were finishing up the motor cortical areas last lecture. And we were talking about the primary motor cortex. And then uh, we finished up with the premotor cortex. And remember, I said that there were a couple of premotor areas. There was one, which we called the premotor area, and premotor cortex, which was on the lateral portion. So this would be the thing that you would have been able to see from that sheep brain that you got, right on the lateral outside here, uh, in the frontal lobe, just in front of the primary motor cortex. Okay, and we said that this was a part of the brain that's important for external guidance, uh, preparing movements from external cues. Okay, and then the other one we talked about was supplementary motor area. And again, that's, uh, the picture isn't great here, but it's basically on the medial surface. So if you go into the, the longitudinal fissure here, if you were to open the brain up and look inside, that would be sort of the premotor area uh, in the middle there. And that's more important for, uh, it has a huge role in sequences of movements, so not just doing one movement, but actually, you know, when you go to make tea, you have to take the tea out of the little wrapper first, and then you put it in the mug, and then you pour the water, and then if you want, you add some honey, and then you take the tea bag out, right? You have, that's a sequence of event, and it often involves, those sequences of event often involve using both hands, so we know this part of the brain has a lot of communication between the two hemispheres, so it, it has a lot to do with coordinating bimanual movements as well. Okay, so that's where we finished up. Um, and this has a lot to do, again, with internal generation of movement. And I'll start talking in a moment about the basal ganglia, which is a subcortical structure, which has a lot to do with internally generating movements uh, for us to, to be able to move around. OK, so there's a lot of communication between the supplementary motor area and the basal ganglia. OK, so what happens if you damage this part of the brain? We often, this is what we're doing in this course. We look at how something works, and then it's like, well, what happens if you damage it? So with M1, we talked about how if you damage primary motor cortex, because it has some of those cells that go from the cortex right on down to the level of the alpha motor neuron, you're going to get paralysis, right? That You don't get that with the premotor areas, um, necessarily, usually. Uh, you usually have, it, again, it depends on which part of the premotor cortex you have damage to. Okay, so for example, if you're damaging that lateral outside part, then your patient's going to have problems planning movements in response to external stimuli, external cues. Like, you know, the green light means push the, the gas pedal, right? <laughs> Sorry. If you have lesions more to the supplementary motor area on the inside surface there, we said that was more important for bimanual control sequences and internal internally generated movements, so that's what problems you're going to see with your patients. You're going to have disrupted self-initiated movements, so they'll respond to external cues, okay? Uh, you're going to have impaired, co impaired coordination between the two hands or two limbs. And then you get, actually, you can get something really interesting called alien hand syndrome with some of these patients. So normally in the healthy state in our everyday lives, if our brains are working just fine, we have both planning for externally guided movements and we have the part of the brain that's responsible for planning internally generated movements, and they're usually in a nice, healthy balance, and everything's fine. If you have damage to the part of the brain that's usually responsible for internally generated movements, sometimes you can get this interesting syndrome called alien hand. And what that means is basically your patient has a hand that's more responsive to external stimuli than to internal commands which basically means you kind of lose control of your hand to external stimuli. So with these poor patients, what happens sometimes is they'll use their unaffected hand. So usually the stroke is, you know, a stroke or something like that, um, is on the opposite side. Remember, everything's contralateral here. So uh, they'll use their, say it's on the SMA of the left side, they'll use their right hand to zip up their jacket their left hand, which is now responding to external stimuli, the visual system will look and say, oh, hey, there's a zipper. And it's going to direct that left hand to unzip it again. So you basically have this poor patient has its two hands battling each other. One hand will do something like turn on the light switch, and then the other hand will be like, ooh, a light switch, boop, and turn it off again, right? So, so you'll have you know, one hand unbuttoning after the other hand is buttoned. So you have these. these you can get this imbalance between internal generation and external where the external starts to take over. And so you have a hand that's really inappropriately responding to external stimuli. 
which you can imagine might get you into some trouble. Okay, so that's alien hand syndrome. It's an, it's, it's an interesting neurological uh, syndrome. I just thought I'd mention it because it's kind of funny. All right, not to the patients. It's frustrating for the patients. But actually, the, what they usually do for the therapy for patients who have this is they make them hold something in the hand that's being affected. So basically, they keep that hand busy so it doesn't get into trouble and that the person can use their other hand for doing all the things that they want to do without the other hand kicking in and, and messing things up. Okay, so I've mentioned a bunch of different motor areas uh, in the past couple lectures. So if you were to look at brain activity associated with these different areas, what would you see? So for something, for example, for a very simple movement, so if we put, this is a brain scan sort of summary activity. If we stick someone in the scanner, we've got a scanner over in Sherman, we stick someone in the scanner there and we simply have them like pressing a button. Often in the scanner you don't have a lot of room to move. So we ask people to respond to things. We usually give them little button boxes or a little switch they have to push or something. Um, and when you have them doing those very simple motor movements like involving just one hand, you'll often see, you'll, you'll always see activity in what we call the sensory motor cortex, which is basically primary motor cortex, primary sensory cortex. Because you're going to get both the initial command just to move that, make that movement, but then you're always, always going to get, you know, the feeling of you pushing that button and the proprioceptive input. You see that also activates. So for a simple movement, you see M1 and S1 light up. If you have somebody doing something more complicated, then they often have to think about what they're going to do. So you see some frontal lobe kick in there. I've got it shown there, prefrontal cortex. But then you'll also see that uh, premotor area, the supplementary motor area, the one in the middle there that we said was important for sequences, you'll see that kick in as well. Okay, so now you see more brain areas come in. What's interesting is um, you often will then see even for just an imagined movement, you'll see brain activity in motor-related areas as well. Okay, you won't see brain activity in primary motor cortex, and usually not primary sensory cortex, but you will see brain activity in the premotor areas, parietal areas, so the, all those other sort of motor-related areas we talked about. In fact, on average, you'll see about 30% of the activity that you would have seen if somebody was actually making a movement. You'll see them if they actually imagine the movement, you, and you won't see any EMG activity, like they won't actually be making the movement. I know this, if you, and if any of you had, you, you get this sometimes with coaching, coaches will tell you this. So for, when I played competitive soccer, we always had on the way to the match, uh, sort of at the higher level, our coach always made us like stop goofing around in the bus or however we were getting there, um, and just start thinking about the game, and he made us visualize, and I know if you guys are doing uh, organized sports, often this is, coaches will do this, like visualize what you're doing. Or, or in dance, I think they do this as well, or martial arts. It's basically picture yourself doing, practice what you're doing. I know piano players sometimes do it as well. They just sit there and close their eyes and picture the sequences of movements they're going to do. And it turns out you actually do activate brain parts that are responsible for, as part of the network, for making that movement. So it is actually a useful thing. And that's what I brought into the labs. I believe those are the labs you're getting this week. There should have been a lab where you're doing this ridiculous, like, why on earth is she making us do this? Where I had some of you just staring there, practicing it in your head, right? And it's because we, we now know through brain scanning, my coach was right, uh, it's actually not a bad idea to actually get your athletes in there and thinking about what they're going to do. Because on average, even if just thinking about it, you're still going to partially activate those networks, strengthen the connections between those areas, and it'll help either your athlete or in, in your lab in theory. I know sometimes you have to have additional data for that because uh, it's a bit of a subtle effect. But it should, in theory, uh, just by operating the, the motor areas that are not primary execution related, you'll still, it should help your performance. That's the idea behind the, the theory behind the lab this week. Okay, so I mentioned there's a couple of different motor areas. Uh, so there's the one on the inside, the SMA, but then there's also on the outside, the premotor area, that lateral surface. It turns out you have both a, a more dorsal premotor cortex and you have a more ventral premotor cortex. So that's going to be higher up is the more dorsal and then lower down more towards your ear is going to be the more ventral area. And there's some really interesting things that happen in that ventral area. There's some neurons that, that respond to basic movements. But there's some others, uh, they do a really cool thing. And it's actually really neat how they were discovered. So um, there's this neurophysiologist, Giacomo Rizzolatti, and he's in Parma, Italy. 
and he runs. He, he's great. He's awesome too. He's like this small Italian guy with like Albert Einstein type white hair and his one with thick glasses, and he's awesome. Um, and in his lab, a number of years ago, he was basically they were recording from cells in. Um, in monkey premotor cortex. And they were down in this area. They'd done a bunch of recordings up in the dorsal areas. So they knew that this was a part of the brain that was really important for for planning movements and for planning. And so they found an area in the sort of ventral premotor area that seemed to respond whenever the animal was reaching out. They had the animal reaching for peanuts. And so they had the animal reaching for peanuts. And they saw that all oh, the cells fired off in this area. So this must be a, a hand movement planning area. And so we're going to record from it. And so they had. You know, they, the, the, so it's basically the grad student made the recovery or, or, or the discovery. He's the one that first noticed. They had a peanut sitting in front of the monkey. So there it was sitting there. And the monkey reached for it. And they, have, they run it through a loudspeaker. So you can hear when the action potentials are firing off. You hear sort of a, a ticking noise coming through the, the speaker. And so the, the monkey would be reaching for the peanut. And they hear the cell fire off. And they go, oh, that's awesome, right? And then um, the, the, the grad student put the peanut there. And then I, I, either, I can't remember exactly what the story was. They either reached to move it or they decided to, to do something else. He, between trials, when he was setting up the next peanut, he hadn't turned the speaker off. So they, the, cell, the, the electrode was still recording and, and sending out noise. And so basically, when the grad student went to reach for the peanut, the monkey was just sitting there. And now remember, this is a motor-related part of the brain. So we're not talking, we're not back in the visual cortex. So the visual cortex probably would have been firing off too. As the monkey's watching you do things, the visual cortex is going to fire off. But this was a motor part of the brain. This is the premotor cortex. It's supposed to be recording and planning movements, um, planning movements with the hands. So basically, the monkey was sitting there, not moving its hand at all. And when the grad student reached for the peanut, they heard the cell fire off. And they thought, what? That's a little odd. And they tried it. Sure enough, it was a really robust finding. They found a bunch of neurons. And they tried a bunch of different names. Uh, one of the names they, they thought of calling it was the monkey see, monkey do neuron. But that didn't stick. The one that stuck was something called the mirror neuron. And so basically, what these neurons are, what they realized they'd come across, was a class of cells where basically the animal is able to put themselves in the place of somebody else doing something. So you're relating to what that other person is doing. So basically, you have a representation of action in this mirror neurons part of your brain that lets you experience things as if you were doing them when somebody else is doing them. We've all done this. Okay, when was the last time you were at an exciting sporting event? Does anybody ever go to any exciting sporting events or even watch them on a big screen television somewhere, right? We watch the Leafs game, the Raptors, the Jays. That's not always as exciting. But, uh, the, the Wolf Pack. Has anybody seen the Wolf Pack crush anybody like bugs on the rugby pitch this summer? It was awesome. Um, what a TFC. TFC is currently stomping everybody, right? So you're watching that. So you're watching a TFC game. Okay, and do, when, you, when you watch a TFC game, do you just sit there? No, you don't just sit there. When somebody kicks the ball, and it's arching and arching, and you see the goalie start to dive. What do you do? Do you just sit there? No, you're like, oh, you're like turning. You're, you're like, you're in it. You're in the action, right? You're, you're feeling it. Or if somebody, if you're watching hockey, and somebody gets crunched into the boards, what do you do? You go, oh, like that, right? Because it turns out they think a lot of that has to do with this part of the brain where you are experiencing, just using vision, you're experiencing what that person what you think that person is experiencing. And so this has been then gone on and on to the thought to be sort of the roots of empathy. Okay, there's been some research into, well, geez, maybe kids with autism who seem to have trouble relating um, to how other people are doing, maybe there's some communication issues with this part of the brain, so they're not totally picking up on how other people are feeling, right? So that's, it's, it's, there's been a lot. So I bring it up. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff out there on mirror neurons if you want to look into it. But it was kind of neat. To me, the exciting thing was, was that it was a grad student that first noticed that this you know, monkey was just sitting there. And then the, the cell was firing off when he reached for the peanut. So um, anyway, those are mirror neurons. Those are really cool. So you have this different things happening in the various premotor areas. It's not just all doing one same thing. You've got a bunch of different things happening there. 
Okay, so just to summarize, the brain control of movement, how do we produce a voluntary movement? I know I've shown this slide before, but okay, again, keep in mind, you've got this motor plan, you've got to come up with a plan. Remember, there's a, there's a goal of the action, but then you have to specify how am I going to interact with that goal, because there's a gazillion different ways I could do it. And I'll talk about more in a moment, the basal ganglia, how that helps us specify what we're going to do. But once you create your plan, and that's through the SMA and the, the PMA, the, those premotor areas, You've got to initiate and execute it. That's your M1. Okay, and then uh, next lecture we'll start talking, in the last lecture we'll talk about the cerebellum where you have some of this comparing what it is you did with what it is you meant to do. Okay, so that's a whole other process for controlling movement as well. Okay, so again, M1 is responsible for the execution. This is a great example of convergence. You've got all these inputs coming from multiple cortical regions to help you make these movements. And then now I'm going to move on to talk about some of the indirect influences on how we control those movements. Specifically, we'll uh, talk about the basal ganglia. Okay, and so certain parts, if you lesion them, you'll have paralysis or paresis, which we said was weakness. Other parts, you'll just have some interesting problems, but you'll still be able to move. And then we talked a little bit about neuroplasticity, how if it's a problem, if it's at the spinal level, that might be permanent because you can't really grow back some of those neurons. But if it's at the cortical level, there's neuroplasticity. You might be able to, uh, to some extent, reorganize how you interact with alpha motor neurons and get some of that movement back. Okay, so again, PMA is more external, visually guided, but other external things as well, whereas the SMA is getting more internally guided or by manual coordination. So in terms of internally guided, uh, the SMA communicates a lot with a structure called the basal ganglia. So now we're just going to moving right along. Um, talk about the, spend the rest of the lecture talking about the basal ganglia. So the basal ganglia is, is a group of five highly interconnected nuclei. And I know it's ironic that they're nuclei because remember what I said, nuclei are cell bodies, a cluster of cell bodies in the central nervous system. If it's a cluster of cell bodies in the peripheral nervous system, we call it a ganglia. If it's a cluster of cell bodies in the central nervous system, we call it a nucleus. But here, some neuroanatomist went and named these five groups of nuclei that talk to each other, the basal ganglia. I don't know why. It's not my fault. I'm sorry. But there you have it. So the basal ganglia are, are uh, these, these five, technically three, but there's two others that are added in because clinically they're all really connected. So, uh, we're just going to go through what the functions are. I'm going to throw a bunch of anatomy at you. I apologize, but to, you, you kind of have to know the structures. Um, we, we go way more into detail in this sort of thing in the fourth year courses. So my 4505 neurophys course, we go into more detail here. I'm just going to make sure you know what the terms are, that you can recognize something as part of the basal ganglia. And then we'll spend a little bit of time on what happens when you have damage to one of these areas, how it can lead to different um, movement disorders, including Parkinson's, which is the most prevalent movement disorder out there, I believe. First or second. It's one at the top. Okay, so where are the basal ganglia? Again, it's a collection of nuclei, and you wouldn't have seen them in your sheep brain because they're deep. They're inside. You would have had to be the one to go rogue and slice that sheep brain open and have a look, and then you would have been able to see them, and maybe not even all of them, depending on where you sliced. But they're, they're deep inside here, so they're subcortical. So, and, so the next... Uh, this and next lecture I'm going to talk about this and the cerebellum, and those are both subcortical structures. They're below the level of the cortex. Okay, so they're a group of subcortical nuclei. Uh, there's five of them. So three that technically make up the basal ganglia um, are the caudate, putamen, and globus pallidus. So let's go through that a little bit more slowly. So the caudate and putamen, so this is where we're going to get into our words of the day. So caudate that is a nucleus. I'm going to jump to the picture here. I'll be jumping back and forth with slides. That is a structure. Okay, we already know what caudate is, right? Do you remember what caudate stands for? What's that Latin for? Is it towards the head or towards the tail? That's right. So caudate is Latin for tail. And if you look at the structure, that's this one here. So see, it's this structure that kind of looks like... Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the Star Wars movies, but there's that one Star Wars character where he basically has this weird like worm thing coming out of him. Do you know that? Oh, well. Anyway, somebody actually knows his name, I'd be really impressed, but yeah. Um, all right, so, so basically you have that caudate nucleus which loops around, 
Okay, so it kind of looks like a tail. That's why they gave it that name. Putamen, that is our word of the day. That means shell or husk. And the reason that's helpful and relevant is because it's located, so here I'm showing these are the basal ganglia all around here from the side. If I were to take a coronal slice, remember the corona, coronal slices across the top here? If I were to take a coronal slice and turn the brain so you're looking straight onto it, um, the caudate at that point would look like a circle because you've basically just sliced something that's a tube, so it's going to look like a circle. Uh, but then you'd see here's the, the caudate um, is up there. You have the putamen and the globus pallidus down here a little bit. So from the side, we're right here. And the putamen is the outer surface because it means shell or husk. So it's basically the shell or the outside of this group of structures here that make up the, um, the rest of the basal ganglia proper. So the caudate, putamen, and then the third um, main structure has two parts. I'm sorry, it's a bit complicated, but it turns out the, the third main nucleus has an internal part and an external part. So the internal part is on the inside here. The external part is on the, the external, the outer part of the, and that's called the globus pallidus. So globus pallidus, the Latin for that is pretty easy. It's basically globus pallidus, pale glob, right? So it's basically this ball-like structure that histologically is pale in color. Okay, so you have the internal side of it and the external side of it, and then on the outside of that you have your putamen, which is your, your shell or your husk. Okay, so technically those are the three nuclei that make up the basal ganglia proper, um, but clinically two other structures are added in, which is why I say there's actually five structures clinically, so we're going we're to go with that. And the two other structures that are added in is uh, one nucleus is called the subthalamic nucleus. Does anybody want to take a wild guess as to what structure that's sitting below? The thalamus. See, anatomy is really easy. Just look at the word. So subthalamic nucleus is a nucleus that's sitting below the thalamus, okay? So that's a, a diencephalon structure, okay? And so this is the, this big uh, pink thing here is the thalamus. Sorry, my label got a bit lost there. Um, so this is the diencephalon, this is the thalamus here, and this is the subthalamic nucleus sitting below it. Okay, and then this, this one here is called substantia nigra. It is a midbrain structure. So you can't really tell in this uh, angle, but it's a bit lower down. So it's at the level of the midbrain, right in there with the superior colliculi and the inferior colliculi and all those other midbrain structures we've been talking about, the, the, the red nucleus, right, the rubrospinal tract. That's all in there. So all this midbrain. This is another midbrain structure. And it, um, when it, histologically, when you stain it, it's darker in color. Okay, so that's why it's called substantia nigra. Okay, so that, so you've got the caudate, putamen, the globus pallidus, and then you have that, and then clinically you add in the subthalamic nucleus and the substantia nigra, and those are your five structures um, that, that make up the basal ganglia. Okay, the reason they're linked clinically is because See if there's anything else I want to tell you there. No. The reason they're linked clinically is because A, they're anatomically highly interconnected, and B, when you lesion any one of them, when there's damage to any one of them, so any one of the five, you get something called, you get a class of movement disorders called dyskinesias. And here, I've actually written that one out. If I can get my uh, projector on here. All right, I don't know if you can see that. Uh, dyskinesia. So basically that's disordered movement, right? So it all, it all goes back to, to Latin here. Remember, kinesiology is movement. So dyskinesia is a disorder of movement. So basically, damage to any one of these five structures is going to somehow lead to uh, a, a disordered movement. And some of the disorders will be movements that you're making that you don't want to make. And some of the disorders will be movements that you don't make that you want to make. And so the question is, wait, well, how can you have both? Usually when you damage a brain area, there's going to be a problem doing something. Whereas when you damage the basal ganglia, whether or not your symptoms are doing things you're not supposed to be doing, 
which is called a positive sign, or not doing things you're supposed to be doing, which is called a negative sign. You can actually have both with the basal ganglia, because the basal ganglia is basically a group of structures which allow us to, to control our movements in a nice balanced way. And so basically what happens when you damage them is you throw that balance off. And depending on how you throw the balance off, you can either throw it off so that you get inappropriate movements or you can throw it off so you don't get movements at all. So I'm going to go through the circuitry on how you can have that, those situations. Okay, so the cortex, did I list it up here? Yeah, the cortex, I'll get it back to it. Um, the cortex sends axons through, the, the input structures of the basal ganglia are uh, the caudate and the putamen. Okay, and together they're known as the striatum. So the cortex sends millions of axons, a wide swath of motor areas, like uh, the premotor cortex, primary motor cortex, parietal areas. There's a ton of cortex that sends information into the caudate and putamen. The caudate and putamen together are known as the striatum. The reason they're known as the striatum um, actually, you, you've had experience with the, that phrase before. So striatum, you've probably seen it already in physiology, right? So where have you seen striated before? Striatal muscle, right? And why is it called striatal muscle? Because it's stripey, right? So striatum, we know, means stripey. So it turns out histologically, if you look at the caudate and putamen, uh, histologically, they are stripey in appearance also. Okay? So that's why they're, they're together called the striatum. Sometimes you might read the neostriatum. I can't remember which, uh, which phrase your readings use. Okay, so you have all this information come from all these cortical areas come in to the, the caudate and the putamen, and those are the input structures. The main output structure is the globus pallidus internal, and it goes out to the thalamus. Okay, so these are your ins, inputs. The GPI is your output. And then these all these other areas, substantia nigra, subthalamic nucleus, uh, globus pallus external. Those are all doing processes that are part of three different circuits that I'm going to tell you about today. Okay, So there's three different circuits amongst the basal ganglia that allow us to control uh, our internally generated movements. Okay, So I, I know I keep going back to this figure. This big scary figure with lots of boxes. So what we're talking about here is here, remember I said this is the higher area, that the cerebral cortical area. We've got these three levels. So here you've got the cerebral cortex communicating with the basal ganglia, which in turn communicates back to the cortex via the thalamus. And it also sends some output uh, to the brainstem. It turns out the main output for the body is the globus pallidus interna, what I just told you. Um, but I also should have mentioned the substantia nigra also has two subdivisions. I'm sorry, it's complicated, but this is, a, this is the way it is. Substantia nigra has two subdivisions. And the one sub, subdivision that's called the substantia nigra reticulata, so it's the, the R part, the part reticulata. Reticulata means web-like. So histologically, it just looks more web-like. Um, that controls movements to the eyes. So in the basal ganglia, you have a separation between the output that controls limb movements, that's the G globus pallidus internal, and you have um, the output to the eye movements is the substantia nigra PR, it's called, pars reticulata. And so you can see this clinically. You'll see patients, for Parkinson's patients, for example, who will have trouble controlling their limbs, but their eyes are okay, whereas you'll have others who will have trouble controlling their eyes, but their limb movements are okay. And that's because anatomically, you have one input system, but ultimately you actually have two output systems. One's going to eyes, and one's going to the body. Okay, so normally you have that, so that's why I have a, uh, an arrow going to the brainstem here, because that's where the substantia nigra are. Okay, and that's output for the eyes, and this is going back. So this is all indirect, okay? There are no connections from the basal ganglia that end up on alpha motor neurons. Okay, they only go back to midbrain structures or cortical structures, which then continue on the movement plan. You also, um, actually, I'll get back to this in a second. Okay, so there are three circuits that I want you to know about, but really only on a really basic level. In the first circuit, um, to understand how you get movement, 
at all, how you internally generated movement. The first thing you have to know is that the globus pallidus internal, so that's the main output structure for limb movement that's going from the basal ganglia to the thalamus. So the GPI communicates to the thalamus. It is tonically active, and that tonic activity is inhibitory. So in your everyday life, you're sitting here, you are not doing things, principally because you've got this structure in your brain which is constantly sending inhibitory tonic signals to your thalamus. It is basically the don't do it man part of your brain, okay? It is the stop, whoa, break. It is a big brake pedal. So basically, most of your lives you have a big brake pedal on, which is good. It's a safety feature. We like having a brake pedal, okay? You don't want to just do things when you're not supposed to do things. Okay, so we have this big brake pedal, which is the GPI sending inhibitory, whoa, whoa, don't do it, just don't do it. Everybody, stop moving, don't do it. Okay, so that's your brake pedal. And so that's usually sitting there. Okay, so you've got this tonic activity. So then the question is, how do we have movement? How do we do anything? And so what has to happen, okay, if somebody's not letting you do something, so they're like inhibiting your actions, they're getting in your way, um, basically, what has to happen for you to get anything done? You have to sort of, sort of work around that person, right? You kind of have to get that person to stop inhibiting you. So basically, that's what happens in your brain. You've got this inhibitory tonic output. In order for action to occur, you have to stop that inhibition. You have to inhibit the inhibitor. Okay, so this first circuit is called the direct path. And basically what this circuit does is it takes information from the cortex and goes into the striatum, which is the caudate and the putamen, and it essentially inhibits the inhibitor. Okay? And so this, this is known as disinhibition. And by inhibiting the inhibitor, you basically lift up the brake pedal and allow action to happen. Okay, so the direct pathway disinhibits the globus pallidus internal, thereby lifting up that brake pedal, which is normally tonically on, and allowing action to happen. Okay, so if we do it as a circuit diagram, here you have the cortex, which sends excitation. Hey, I want to do something. Okay, and so it's coming from various parts of the cortex. We'll go through that in a moment. I want to do something. But this globus pallidus, it's normally sending tonic inhibition to the thalamus back to the cortex. So usually nothing is going through. But when I excite the striatum, it turns out the striatum has an inhibitory connection to the globus pallidus. Okay? So when my striatum gets excited, I inhibit the globus pallidus. If you inhibit something that's inhibiting, you disinhibit. You basically lift the brake pedal. You stop the haters. Stop the haters. So, so basically, you, you, you disinhibit, and that's lifts the brake pedal and allows action to happen. So you reduce the amount of inhibition on the thalamus, and that allows action to go through. Okay, and I've just got that written out there. So you excite the striatum. It inhibits the inhibitor, and so thus that releases those thalamic neurons, which were inhibiting that particular action from the cortex to keep going. Okay, question? PI, yes. Yes, we're ignoring the GPE for the moment. Actually, we're ignoring the GPA for most of this course. I have this fourth year course where we go in a lot more detail. Um, actually, that's a good question. The GPE, what's the GPE doing? And what's the subthalamic nucleus doing? I haven't talked about those yet. So those two are actually, they're part of a, a second circuit. Okay, so, so the direct pathway is a go pathway. Okay. So it allows sustained action or initiation of action. And those other parts, there's an indirect pathway, which through those other parts, and I'm not going to go through all the circuitry, but essentially uh, subthalamic nucleus, globus pallidus, external, they essentially push the brake pedal down further. Okay, so they inhibit unwanted action by via the GPE and the STN, so that's globus pallidus external, subthalamic nucleus. Um, there's circuitry there that in the healthy state, when this indirect pathway gets activated, 
Basically, it's the subthalamic nucleus is like egging on the globus pallidus internal, saying, yeah, man, don't do it, don't do it. It pushes the brake pedal down farther. Okay, so normally in the healthy state, you have your brake pedal set at a particular location that's taking in information both from um, sort of the tonic state of activity going through this indirect pathway, okay, and, and, and the direct pathway. So normally you have your brake pedal sitting at a certain place, and sometimes events will occur in your environment which will get you to push that brake pedal down further, so you do unwant, inhibit unwanted actions, inappropriate actions. Sometimes in things in your environment um, and your internal motivation. Sorry, this is more environment. It's, it's more your, your memories and motivations. This is an internal control of movement. Will then, you know, activate the direct pathway, which will lift up the brake pedal. Okay, so the indirect path um, basically pushes the brake pedal down further. Okay, so it increases inhibition and suppresses unwanted movement. Okay, I'm going to get to the third circuit in a moment. So we've got two circuits, direct, which allows action to happen, lifts up the brake pedal, indirect, with inhibits unwanted action, pushes the brake pedal down further. I'll get to the third, third circuit in a moment. But let's just review where we're at. Okay, so the basic function then um, of the basal ganglia is for programming self-initiated movement. All right, and so like I said, you've got all these potential things you could do and again, when you're doing your pecans or you're playing a sport, this is a great example of when this happens. So for example, you're going to be, you're out there on the soccer field, you've got a tricky move that you know you could do with the ball, um, but you also know that you're up against a defender you've faced before who's probably been able, from your memory, you remember you might not be able to get past this particular defender, so you then decide to do something else. Or you notice, um, you, you remember, you know, so there's other various internal motivations, or you're starting to feel a little bit tired, so you were going to make a run for the goal, but instead you decide to pass. Okay, so these are all sorts of information that's going to be coming in from different parts of your cortex, okay, and they're going to be sending all this information into the basal ganglia. The basal ganglia is going to evaluate all of these EPSPs and IPSPs coming in at the level of the striatum, and it's going to allow whichever one basically wins out hey, okay, I'm getting tired, I'm not going to make that run, and then that might come in concert with the same time noticing somebody's open on the wing, I'm, that's the play I'm going to do. Okay, so it selectively activates some movements and inhibits others through those two circuits I talked to you about. Okay, so you can, I've got it represented here. It's sort of the dynamic ongoing control of movement, all right? So as you're going through your day or as you're going through an individual walking around here, as I walk, I realize, oh wait, okay, here I am, I've got to move here, oh right, I have to sprint over to the Aviva Center after this lecture, maybe I don't want to continue on up all these stairs, maybe I want to, you know, conserve my energy. So I'm just going to go back to the front of the classroom here, I'm not going to just start wandering all over. All right, so you have this dynamic in situations and things can change, um, and so basically you have all these potential responses that you can do, I've got represented as little rivers heading for a dam here, and the basal ganglia basically evaluates all of those and then opens up one thing and that's the one that activates a direct pathway and allows that action to go through. Okay, that's sort of a very simplified way of what's happening with all those nuclei um, in the basal ganglia. Okay, so what are the factors that determine go? Like which factors really, you know, open up one response and then stop all the others? Okay, and that would be uh, the third circuit I talked about. Okay, so there's a various thing. So like I said, there's context. So this is like a context encoder, this part of the brain. It's taking in the context of your environment, of what you're doing, what would be the most appropriate movement to do. It's taking kind of memory, okay. Um, and it's basically providing a balance of whether to do something or whether it's not. But the, thing, the third circuit, what it's taking into account is motivation. Okay, so the third side circuit involves uh, the other part of the substantia nigra. So remember I said there's substantia nigra, this reticulated part that is output for eye movements. Turns out there's this other part of the substantia nigra called the compact part. So you'll see a little, someday you'll see it, I think I've written in the notes with a little C next to it. In your readings you'll see it, sometimes called pars compacta. 
Okay, that part of the brain contains all these, it's compact because it's like it's a hugely dense area. It's this tiny little midbrain structure, but it contains millions of axons. The neurotransmitter for these cells is dopamine. So you've got all these dopamine containing cells in this little midbrain structure. And what that circuit does is it, it enhances the direct pathway and it inhibits the indirect pathway. And if you think about it, what that means is that it basically, in the healthy state, at rest, in a natural, regular environment, and everything's working with your brain, it helps set your brake pedal for initiating movement at a certain location. Okay, so the, the, that's the motivational part of your brain that takes information often from like the limbic system, from the frontal lobe, memories of things that motivate you. Okay, and it will basically help enable action by helping with the direct pathway and inhibiting the indirect pathway, which itself is usually pushing the brake pedal down further. So they both, so the, the, this third motivational side circuit helps enable action. Okay, so I, I think I've used this, this, uh, this example before, but you're sitting on the couch, it's 3 a.m., the Netflix show ends, the little triangle comes up, there's your remote control. So at this point in time, you have to decide, what am I going to do with my body? Am I going to, oh, so now you start, your brain is starting to evaluate various signals that it's getting in and various memories and motivational components to your day. So is it a Friday night? You don't have to do anything tomorrow morning. You're not working in the morning. If so, then maybe you would motivate the movement that is hitting you know, the little go button on the Netflix to go on for the 14th episode of Gilmore Girls. Sure, go ahead. Um, is it, oh, do you have to use the washroom? That is often a motivating factor after watching 14 episodes of Gilmore Girls that will get you off the couch, right? Are you very hungry? Okay, but then there's me memory things. It's like, well, actually I do have to work tomorrow and last time I watched three seasons of Murdoch mystery, and I'm just coming up with things. Um, you know, it didn't go so well for me the next day. So all these things are impinging on your substantia, on your, um, on your caudate and your putamen. All these, these cortex is sending all these signals into your basal ganglia. Your basal ganglia basically picks the winner, who motivates you the most. And this dopamine circuit basically lifts up your brake pedal to either hit that remote or actually, you know, hit the off button and get up and, and, and go to bed. Okay, so, so you have the one direct circuit, lifts the brake pedal up, the indirect circuit pathway, which pushes the brake pedal down, and then you've got this motivational side circuit through those dopamine cells coming in. Um, and so basically you've got this go and stop signals both coming in, and that is why when you have damage to one of these structures, you can have either go not happening or you can have stop not happening. You can have patients doing inappropriate movements or you can have patients not moving. Okay, because it's a balance of that brake pedal. So you mess with that brake pedal when you damage one of these circuits. Okay, so again, one of its main things that it has you doing is, is motivating movement initiation. And again, this is more self-initiated movement. We talked about more um, the other part of the premotor cortex, uh, the, not the SMA, but the PMA is dealing more with external stimuli. Okay, and we're going to talk about the cerebellum next lecture, and that, that does more with external stimuli. But this is more your self-initiated movements rather than stimulus-triggered movements. So it's going to be controlling your habitual skill-based movements and when you do them and whether you're motivated enough um, to do them. Okay, so here's a, here's a gruesome hospital fire anecdote. Um, so we know Parkinson's, as I'll talk about in a moment, is a problem with that motivational side circuit I just told you about, the dopamine cells get knocked out. We don't know why, but they do. Um, and so these patients have trouble initiating movements. But gruesome stat is that in a hospital fire, cheerful thing, Parkinson's patients are actually not the ones to perish in hospital fires. So basically, with Parkinson's, if there's enough external motivation, like smoke and alarms and flames and people yelling, that will get them up and out. Okay, it's, it's the folks who are having problems with lower motor issues who can't move or external 
uh, stimuli. Uh, they're the ones who, who are more likely to perish in a hospital fire. Okay? I, I encourage, if you can, uh, motor control movie hit list, if you can ever get a chance to see um, the movie Awakenings. It's a bit old now, but it's still awesome. It's Robin Williams starring as Oliver Sacks. And it's spectacular. And it just goes through a lot of this. Uh, he wasn't dealing with Parkinson's patient specifically. He was dealing with a type of encephalitis that left people with Parkinson's-like symptoms. But it kind of goes through how he discovered external stimuli could get some of them moving. And then he started working with dopamine. But Robin Williams is, is absolutely spectacular. Um, I highly recommend that movie. Okay, so basically, um, so again, you're gonna, you, you need this part of the brain for planning, controlling complex movements. And, and it's not just one movement, but it's helping you motivate you know, and, and plan which movements you're going to make. How am I doing for time? Okay. So just to finish up, um, oh, sorry. I just wanted to point out that we talked about how mo primary motor cortex neurons fire a little bit before you start to move. About 50 to 100 milliseconds. Premotor cortex neurons fire a little bit before that because they have to do with planning. Often with basal ganglia, what you'll do, what you'll see, um, a lot of them will actually just fire after the movement started. And so some of them fire before, but some of them fire after. And this just highlights that it's not just helping initiate movements, but it's helping to shape the ongoing movements that you're making. Okay, because it's as you go through your environment and you go through your movements and you're skating around the ice surface, um, there's basically things are going to change on deciding what movements you're going to make. And so there's this ongoing, continuous, dynamic taking account of context and controlling your movements. Okay, I also want to remind you that none of the cells that are in the basal ganglia end up synapsing with alpha motor neurons. It's all indirect control. Okay? So they either go through the thalamus or through that substantia nigra reticular, PR, reticular part for eye movements. Okay, so I'll uh, just finish up with uh, briefly going through both uh, one disorder where you don't have movements you want to make, and then that's Parkinson's, and then Huntington's, which is a disorder where you make movements that you don't want to make. Okay, so what's happening, we don't know why, but for some reason those dopamine-producing cells in the substantia nigra die. And if we knew why, then, then we wouldn't have Parkinson's anymore. So this is a healthy midbrain of, of somebody. And you can see there's lots of dark, oh, that's the red nucleus over there, by the way, in the midbrain. So here you have dark substantia nigra. And then here's a Parkinsonian midbrain. And you really hardly see any dark there at all. Those cells, like 70 to 80% of the cells die off before you even start to see some of the worst symptoms in these patients. So, so it's, uh, by the time it's noticed, you often have a substantial loss. So basically what's happening, if you think about my brake pedal analogy, is you no longer have an enabling of the direct pathway and you no longer have an inhibition of the indirect pathway, which means both of these things contribute to the brake pedal being pushed down too far. And so what this means for your patients, um, first off, it, it messes with the balance. But basically what it means is that means their cortex has to supply that much more EPSPs to the striatum to, over, to activate that direct pathway even more to be able to lift the brake pedal up enough to allow action. Okay, so they basically have to put a lot more effort into getting up out of their chair or moving because the brake pedal's been pushed down farther. Mm -hmm. Ah, I'll get to that in a second. So, I'm just giving you the, the main problem, which is bradykinesia, which is the slowness of movement, because that brake pedal's down too far. Akinesia, which is difficulty initiating movement. Okay, and something else you see is muscle rigidity, which is just um, uh, passive resistance to movement. Okay, or sorry, resistance to passive movement. But then, yes, you do see something called a resting tremor. And this is paradoxical, right? Because now they're doing something, that's an unwanted movement. And it turns out, remember I said it's all a balance. You've got these five nuclei, and they're all in beautiful balance. So I'm talking about the main circuit that gets messed up. But there are some other circuits that get messed up, which no, normally control our rhythmic movements, that we do things when we're like brushing our teeth, or you know, waxing the car, or whatever, all those things. One of those circuits gets messed up as well. 
It's actually, it's a, it's a slightly different pathway, but that also gets affected by the dopamine getting knocked out. And so that's why often these patients, they'll call it pill rolling. It's about a four to six hertz tremor that you'll see in their hand, okay? Um, so basically, I know that's a positive sign, but your main signs for Parkinson's is the brake pedal's down too far, there's too much inhibition. Okay, and you can contrast that with Huntington's disease. Huntington's disease is uh, a genetic disorder which uh, affects the caudate. So remember, it affects one of those input structures. And so what it does is it basically messes with that sort of globus pallidus external subthalamic nucleus side pathway, which normally pushes the brake pedal down a little bit further. And normally, when a movement's going to be made that's inappropriate, it pushes that brake pedal down and says, no, no, don't do that one. Okay, so that's normally the indirect pathway. So here, your indirect pathway gets messed up, which means your brake pedal isn't down far enough. Your brake pedal is too close to being released, which means movements that aren't supposed to happen are happening. And so what you see are things called, one of them, one category of movements called chorea, which is a large uncontrolled movement. So you'll, you'll see these patients have sometimes flailing limbs or their heads will turn. Uh, in general, hyperkinesia. They just have more movements. You'll see their, their inability to keep their tongue in their mouth. They'll be like licking their lips all the time. Um, they'll, they'll be sort of holding at their fingers because sometimes you see something called athetoid movements or athetosis. So that's often writhing hands. Okay, so these patients, they'll sometimes try to incorporate it as if it's natural movement. So instead of, if their tongue moves, they'll just, you know, make it like they're licking their lips, or they'll just look down at their fingers as if they're inspecting their, their hands, when in fact their, their hands, they can't stop them from writhing. Okay? And so in this case, they're getting unwanted movements because that brake pedal's been pulled up a little too high, so it goes off too early. Okay, so I know that was a lot of information for one lecture. It's a really complicated, it's the most complicated part of the brain, frankly. Um, so I, I just, the main things I want you to know is that you have these nuclei and they're normally in balance between pods. The brake pedal is usually set at a balanced, healthy state. So if you have damage, that's why you can either have unwanted movements or not initiate movements. Okay, and so you have this dynamic control of ongoing movement in the healthy state. Um, and that can get messed up when there's disorders. Okay? All right. I will see you for one final lecture next Monday.